Welcome back to the Table Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We are in, I think this is the fourth installment Mm -hmm. of our walk through the book, How Not to Read the Bible Mm -hmm. by Dan Kimball. But first, um, I imagine you all have heard about the priest who messed up some baptisms. In Arizona. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Megan, what do you make of that as a former Catholic yourself? Oh, my word. Well, part of me is, I suppose, still perpetually Catholic. Um, You can't take the Catholic completely out. You can't. You can't. Um, Nor should you. Why would you want to? (laughs) You don't need to. There's so much about being Catholic that I'm like, I I could use a little more of that, frankly. Like, I freely walk into Catholic churches now and just worship like everyone else. I know that I'm... You're just like, this is awesome. Yeah, I'm technically not supposed to do that, but I do. And, uh, yeah. Um, Ash Wednesday, you will find me, you know, going to church. Um, So... Before this, we mentioned this article as something that we might bring up, and I had this mixture of both like uh, hilarity and I was like working really hard not to just burst into tears. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> conjures up both feeling. those feelings, doesn't it? I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if laughing is a good. Is that a good response? I think it's just like the insanity of it, like the scope of the issue. Yeah, for people just... is so mind-boggling that it's like all you can do to just like. This is crazy, like the impact that this has for people. So help us. large. Help us. You're a Catholic mother whose baby was baptized by this priest who mm-hmm. apparently messed up one word in the baptismal liturgy. Yeah, and we should say what he messed up. He apparently did baptisms both in English and Spanish. And he used the phrase, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he should have said, I baptize you mm. in the name um so it is not the community that baptizes a person and incorporates them into the church of christ rather it is christ and christ alone who presides at all sacraments therefore it is christ who baptizes and then of course the priest is standing in sure for christ yeah. that's what a sacrament is you know uh-huh. he's like their intermediary between okay right. so if you were baptized using the wrong words that means your baptism is invalid and you are not baptized like that's the official okay that does seem like a problem yeah it's a huge problem and i mean this is i can't remember how many people it was he started his priesthood in 1995 and has always used the wrong word it goes deep that is and i mean I wonder um, how many babies that is. <laughs> I don't and, know. And, and I mean, people, converts. Yep. There's people, you, you can get baptized in the Catholic church as an adult, you know, when you convert yeah. or if you just never were, um, you can, of course, like you, you baptize your baby as soon as possible. Because and let's talk so, about the, like the significance of baptism <laughs> has to do with like, if your baby were to die. Mm hmm. It's yeah. destiny and time spent in and, purgatory and these things. Yes. And anyone who's been baptized since 1995 may have died at any point later on or things like that. And now they have family members who are kind of dealing with this very intense concern that mm-hmm. this person was not properly uh, sacramentally brought into the family of God. Um, and so <laughs> it's just an incredibly, it sounds, I suppose, I didn't, you didn't grow up Catholic. So how did it sound to you, Phil? Uh, I, it sounded like a, a lot of, um, to do about nothing. That's Why is that? Because, <laughs> because the particular formula, I don't put as much emphasis on it needing to be absolutely accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know? 
it, yeah. it has more to do as a, you know, I think probably as a low church Protestant, I'm mm-hmm. more about the heart behind it. Yeah, like kind the of thing. spirit of yep. the the sacrament yeah. rather than it's really the presence of the Holy Spirit in the moment uh-huh. that does the work, you mm-hmm. know, that sort of thing. And Catholics agree with that. There's just a there's a particular emphasis on how the rite is passed. Um, in order for it to be utterly clear, you know, that it is in alignment with the church, with like what the church has discerned together to be what we need in order to properly theologically, um, you know, bring people into the family of God through, like they said, through Christ and not through anyone else. And this guy was Mm -hmm. essentially saying that we like y'all we yeah. or or it could mean me and jesus <laughs> or yeah. it could mean who whatever is, i could see the problem i mean who's yeah. we here what if there's it's some like scoundrel out in the congregation mm-hmm. that day you tell me that that guy baptized me yeah. that's not cool mm-hmm. but um <laughs> the like the far-reaching impact now this guy he resigned apparently but yes. like uh, I mean, just to think about like terrible. one of those babies that was falsely baptized grows to become a priest themselves who then baptize his people and marries people but he was never actually baptized himself he's not actually part of the church uh just the implications it's like the butterfly effect Mm -hmm. and so uh here's (laughs) here's what i hope happens i hope that people can start to really perhaps who have always just kind of gone through the ritual or something like that can start to ask themselves like really heart level questions about what kind of god do i actually believe in who is he really what's he like is the God that I believe in the kind of God that would, you know, hold my baby out the window of the house of <laughs> faith because of that word? Mm-hmm. Or do my or is the Bible that I see revealed or the God that I see revealed in Jesus somebody other than that? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's what I hope people will come to see. And obviously as a thoroughgoing Protestant, that's where my mind goes. I'm like, I just don't think God's the kind of God that would let that be a real issue, you know? Mm-hmm. I get it. I do. I think like I think Catholics completely agree with you. Uh, well, and clearly also have not. a particular <laughs> way. I mean, like, you know, I mean, even if you talk to a priest, they're going to mm-hmm. say, yes, this is true. But also like there's an overarching grace over these types of matters for sure. imperfect people. This is a good segue into talking about what you brought up where mm-hmm. imperfect people are administering sacraments in the name of Jesus. And so, um, you know, they're going to work this out mm-hmm. through the church. And yeah. that's not a bad thing. Like they're saying these things were not valid, but you can bet that, you know, they're going to do things within church order in order to, they're not going to end up saying, well, too bad. No. And what I brought up earlier was in the, you know, first three or four centuries of the church, there was a controversy we refer to now as the Donatist controversy where the question arose, uh, are the, the sacraments initiated overseen by immoral priests still valid? Like if Mm -hmm. your priest turns out to be a dirty, rotten scoundrel, does that mean your baptism or your marriage wasn't real? Mm -hmm. And it was around, I think Augustine, he was involved in this controversy and ultimately the church landed on, you know, uh, no, your baptism is mm-hmm. still valid because it is, like you said, it is God. That is an act of God ultimately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's not necessarily referring to proper wording, but it seems to me to make sense. It's some an s- extension of an imperfect person. Yeah. A yeah. fault of the priest. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about it, like the way the Catholic church is not blind to this. Like for instance, if you think about the way that, the Catholic 
order has traditionally dealt with like abuse cases and things like that quietly not discussing it you know Uh working things out inside and then for them to come out and say well these weren't valid (laughs) right (laughs) that was that was a one-word mistake that Mm -hmm. you know and first of all they're different things like this is a sacrament it's different than you know just general living your life and things like that but of course it might look like hypocrisy i suppose to people from the outside but of course the catholic church isn't saying that this is like not forgivable and you know um yeah yeah, and the fact is that the Catholic Church, is, I always kind of say this about Catholics, they've had a lot of time to think things through. Mm-hmm. And they usually have very thoughtful responses just about anything. And you'd be surprised at the things that sound wild to us uh, non-Catholics, like this, for example. How is that such a big deal? Um, th- they've thought about it before. And they, I don't, I couldn't tell you the exact response as to why this matters so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only do they probably have a reason, but I'm sure that they do have a... Uh, a way to move forward from mm-hmm. it, as you said, in order to assure all the, the grieving mothers that their babies, you know, might not actually be part of the church. Yeah. like I'm sure there's an answer. There's grace that covers that. And then also, I mean, like, um, the words that they use, like in the Donatist controversy, it was like the perpetual invalidity, you know, of anything that the priest ever did because they're not perfect. Uh-huh. They've settled that. Like, that's not... That's right. just not. They've thought of it before. <laughs> yeah. So there is, there's not going to be perpetual invalidity to the sacraments. They will work within what they have thought mm-hmm. out before and they will do it. All right. Well, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Let's talk about our book. So Megan, uh, if I were to tell you a joke, imagine a scenario here. I told you a joke and it started out, it was like a narrative joke, like, a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar or something like that. And then a few days later, you somehow come to realize that when I told you that, I was lying. There was no priest and rabbi that actually walked into a bar. And I guess the question I should ask, was I telling you a lie? Only if you knew that I didn't know that it wasn't literal. Okay. Uh, so there's something about the genre of the joke that suggests the place that literal our literal understanding or mm-hmm. even the the way in which truth functions. Cuz even even if I didn't have the ability to understand that something could be metaphorical mm-hmm. and you knew that about me and you said something that was metaphorical, it doesn't cease to be metaphorical. Um, you know, you just, uh, you can't change what something is yeah. if you meant it as a metaphor. That is what it is. But also you're kind of a jerk if I like have an inability to see things. <laughs> yeah. You're taking this to a level beyond which I, yeah, yeah. And then that might be sin. <laughs> My point is that <laughs> the way that truth functions in a particular context has to do with the genre mm-hmm. that we're operating within. Okay. Did my illustration make that clear no i just didn't partner with it <laughs> i just you did took great. it next level you did great um but i would agree with you by the way if i knew that you had some sort of inability <laughs> to understand mean. yeah and yeah it, and i just it's like when you tell your two-year-old like oh if you keep sucking your thumb it's gonna turn green yeah right. that's not they true can't, they can't never been true they, they can't understand true. the level of what you're talking they're just gonna hear it literally Can I tell you a quick story okay when my kids were really little this is like in like the it's in the canon 
like the Cook family lore, <laughs> and I do not remember this. <clears throat> and they will admit, okay, my teenagers today get very passionate about this. I don't remember this, and I specifically, absolutely, would never tell my kids something that wasn't literally accurate, like that they weren't aware that it was like sure. a game or something. Uh -huh. Like we just, I'm just not like that. Drives me crazy when parents are like, if you keep acting like that, I'm going to leave without you. And I'm like, yeah. no, you're not. Mm -hmm. Like you're going to, they're going to grow up to be super anxious because you always said one thing and did something else. Yeah. You know? Okay. <clears throat> so I'm not like that. And they said that one time when <laughs> they were really young, they had been watching like TV all the way through like Sesame Street and like Word World and all the things. You know, like they'd gotten yeah. through several episodes of PBS TV. And then I said something that you could definitely uh, say was uh, literary artism. I uh -huh. think I said something that was like, uh, you know, if you keep watching TV or how did I say it? They have the exact words. I never remember because I don't remember this. They said that I said if you watch this much TV every day, it's going to start to melt your brains. And I meant it, of course, like... A little hyperbole going on. Hyperbole. Yeah. And joking. And I'd never said it again. They say that. They're like, never said it again. But it that it was something about it, like, lodged in Grace's brain, who's the oldest. Yeah. And, like, Patey, too, remembered it. And Grace said that she vividly remembers going to bed at night wondering if she watched enough TV that her brain might fall out oh of her ears when she like falls Just like asleep. a ooze? But yes. But then again, I never said it again. And like, you know, that's taking it next level. <laughs> like, <laughs> they never brought it up to me. Yeah. They were never like, you know. But they are like so passionate about it that it's something that I absolutely said and they absolutely believed me and apparently for more than a year mm -hmm. that's funny. they really did wonder if your yeah. brain could start to ooze out that's funny yeah wow <laughs> well it illustrates my point um in what in what context does truth function or in what ways does truth function in any given context is an important question and uh, that ties into our discussion today about the Bible and science. Um, is, Scientifically, your brain cannot melt inside your head. We just need to be clear in case ears. anyone out there is wondering. <laughs> TV is not going to do that to you. It might do some stuff, but it's not going to do that. It um, can, however, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones, um, you can like melt from the outside in. Do you if you that? If you drink from the wrong cup? Yeah. And you just like your, <laughs> your skin melts off yeah. and then your muscles... And then you get to your yeah, skeleton. Yeah, he chose poorly. And just, yeah, your eyes disappear. That's my favorite scene. That's scientifically true. <laughs> <laughs> is a joke a lie? Most of us would probably say no. A joke is not a lie because truth is functioning in a different way. And, and we have to understand language and words and communication in terms of the particular genre that they're falling into, um, that they're a part of. And I just want to broadly say this whole last 10 minutes of discourse has been me ramping up to say... Uh, that we have to read Genesis that way as well. We have to read the whole Bible that way as well in terms of its uh, its literary genre and what that genre is designed to do, okay? And so when you bring um, scientific concepts of what truth is and apply them in contexts where it doesn't make sense, such as a joke, right, or a hyperbolic statement about brains melting, stuff like that, 
um, most people would say, no, you're misapplying the function of truth here. Mm -hmm. You know, like you're making some sort of a confusion of categories here. And uh, it's my contention that we have done that on a massive scale with the Bible, both Christians and Mm -hmm. non-believers. Although I find most non-believers who do it are usually reacting to Christians having done it. Um, They're almost like illustrating the stupidity of some of the things that they see by mirroring it back to you. Right. You know, with different logic, same, same principle. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a big problem. And so this is, this is an important topic in this chapter. Um, But, in the 1900s, there was this huge swell, this increase of textual discoveries from the ancient world, all right? Um, 1800s, 1900s. And what we started seeing is like, as we uncovered like Mesopotamian and Babylonian and Egyptian texts, what we started realizing is, that, oh man, a lot of this language sounds an awful lot like the Bible, an awful lot like the Old Testament. I mean, the way that they would pray, the way, the way they would worship and talk to their gods, the way they'd sacrifice, the, the way they talked about creation and stuff like that. A lot of it sounds an awful lot like the Bible. And so then Christians are like, wait, we thought our Bible was like super unique. We thought that our Bibles, it just kind of floated down on a heavenly pillow to us. And it turns out that's not how it happened. And that's a little disillusioning sometimes. But here's what's happened over time. As scholars have been able to dig into that material more and more, um, what we've realized is that the Bible might not give us unique truths on a scientific level, but what it says theologically and what it says anthropologically is very unique. And so when we're reading these ancient texts, and I'm going to talk about this more later, we need to read them uh, not for what they're trying to tell us scientifically because they were revealed in their scientific paradigms of the time or worldviews of the time. Um, Rather, we need to read them about what they're saying about God, what they're saying about us, mm-hmm. our dignity, our worth, our purpose, and our function, those sorts of things. Because mm-hmm. that's just like what it literally says. It's what it's communicating. Correct. Yes. Anyway, I hope I've made that <coughs> point clear here. In uh, the same way that like communication that is metaphorical, like a joke that's hyperbole or sarcasm or, you know, all these different ways that we communicate things that are not actually literal they're often more powerful to get across an actually true point right you know like Mm -hmm. that's just how we're built so we've been conditioned in modernity to understand truth in terms of like representational like truth is is a matter of there being some real one-to-one correlation in the world between my words and what's out there and, and we lose sight of the understanding of truth as also encompassing encompassing things like wisdom you know, and uh, significance of things and stuff like that. And the Bible has a much broader scope of truth than what we tend to have in our propositional scientific modern age. And so um, there's a meme that I wanted to bring up on page 157 because I think it illustrates a good point. I want to talk about it. It says, Christianity the belief that some cosmic Jewish zombie can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him that you accept him as your master so he can remove an evil source from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. Makes perfect sense. That's actually all true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd, well put, I'd yeah. say. No, um, <laughs> when you read that, Obviously, it makes Christianity sound like 
pretty bananas, mm-hmm. right? Particularly by our modern scientific standards. Uh, really, I probably buy about anyway standards. It makes it sound pretty nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, the point I want to make about that meme is that I could make a similar meme about any view, okay? Like at, at the heart of any view, there's going to be some sort of a presupposition that you could poke at and reconstrue in ways that sound pretty mm-hmm. nuts. Mm-hmm. When you take it out of context and start just saying facts, right? things can sound kind of nuts. And construing them in the worst possible mm-hmm. language. So for example, right before I walked in here to record, I just jotted down one. If I were to make one about atheists, here's what I'd say, something like this. Uh, atheism, the belief that the laws of nature contradicted themselves at the exact same time in order to produce an ever-expanding universe that has no real purpose or value sounds great. You know, like, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I could do an even better one if I had the time. Mm-hmm. Or I believe you could. Secular humanism. There is no source of ultimate value other than ourselves, yet clearly we should treat one another with dignity and love just the way you'd want to be treated. Wait, what? That's a teaching of Jesus, you say? Why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> you know, like you can yeah. twist stuff around and make it sound as ridiculous as you, as you want, no matter what view. And so my point here is that that meme that some atheists wrote operates on the assumption that they have some sort of epistemological high ground from which they can poke fun mm-hmm. at these other views. But what postmodernity, one of the, th- this is why I'm, more po- I'm, I'm kind of postmodern. Postmodernity has kind of stripped modernity of that myth. Like there is no locations, no, no objective high ground, no safe space from which you can just stand and view before you all of the different uh, views and understandings of the world and life. Mm-hmm. You are located somewhere too, and you operate off of some sort of unresolved presupposition mm-hmm. too. There's a really good illustration for this in culture that you can see like Arthur Conan Doyle when he um, was writing the Sherlock Holmes series. Uh-huh. Those are very modernistic. So it's a modern interpretation of how things work in the world because there's always this huge mystery that seems like it must be supernatural sure. of to some degree. But by the end, it turns out it's all perfectly explained uh-huh. by actual fact. Like, right. oh, here's how they accomplished this. It's not this. actually a ghost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, you know, you can see that. And then actually... Arthur Conan Doyle, by the end of his life, actually bought into this theory that's completely fake, long story short, about <laughs> these like spirits that were visible if you photograph them by this pond and like, uh, you know, like uh, in a certain type of light, you could like see these like okay. invisible beings. And he like bought into that at the end of his life, huh. like for real, even though he had spent his career like writing these. Yeah, the rational explanation for absolutely everything, a rational explanation for everything that appears to be rational supernatural. in terms of modern yeah. conceptions so of rationality. Everything that appears to be supernatural actually has a rational explanation, whether we know it or not. Mm-hmm. And the pursuit of that knowledge to understand that that's modernism, like making mm-hmm. sense of everything based on facts, you know, right. like there's an explanation for things. Um, and then, towards the end of, the, of his life, he falls for this thing and gets very passionate about it. Like, no, this is actually real, you know, whatever. Um, and it really illustrates the way that culture was shifting. Mm. Like by the time that he dies, mm-hmm. he's like falling into this thing that is really also how culture is moving to like kind of circle back to like this, um, like fascination with 
things that we can't explain and things mm-hmm. like that. But also what is happening is like world war one and sure. people being like, what is life? Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> wow. So anyway, yeah, and the, the point I got in, lots of knowledge in here <laughs> that I never think to bring up. <laughs> the, um, no, that was a little nugget from your mind castle. I like My it. Mind castle. So the, <laughs> the point I think that we could draw that together with is that, um, what is a fact? What is truth? What is rationality? Those things, those things mean, Different, those words have different meanings and different significances um, depending on like what epoch you're inhabiting in human history. And we modern Westerners have a particular definition and understanding of those words uh, that is not above or better or, it might be better, that's to be proven, but um, it is not free from presuppositional um, perspectives. You know, like we have assumptions about the way the world works that we operate off of. And one of the things that postmodernity has come along and said is that, look, the modern belief that you're somehow objective and standing outside beyond and above all the data and just kind of perfectly um, arbitrating, you know, between it is a myth. Like we all are located, we're all situated um, in some sort of a tradition and a history and a worldview and a culture that shapes our understanding of the world. And so anyway, my point is that just that meme seems to operate off of what I think is a modern fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can kind of pull the rug out from under it by saying, look, we're all in the same boat. Like we all, if you're going to land anywhere in terms of your worldview, like at some point somebody can come along and poke fun at it and make, make it sound absurd. And that's kind of the wild reality of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like the, yeah. and, and the way that we have best, in all cultures, you know, over all time, really the ways that people have risen above like the chaotic, um, you know, uh, what was the word that you just used? Like the, I used a lot of words just I now know. <laughs> to describe the world being, um, you know, just the idea that like the things about life that we cannot make sense of, that's where art comes in, mm-hmm. you know, because there are some things that we just can't grasp. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a, there's a truth in art that's not fully accounted for in the modern understandings of truth. Mm-hmm. But other cultures, other times in history have understood that to be the case. Truth is not just facts that you can like determine and understand. I would that say, is not yeah, it. truth is not just facts understood in a modern mindset. Yeah. Like there's still factual like truth is just what it is but it's not just like um you can write it on a page because there's things that you can't communicate with something that you're just knowing with your brain and writing down and understanding in a sequence that's true but there's more to it than that so Mm -hmm. you can't only communicate what's true with facts as we know them written in books yeah when a scientist in his lab encounters say three different facts about something three things that correspond to the world and he discovers these and realizes them there's still an interpretive move that has to happen he still has to measure the significance of those facts why do they matter what's it for Mm -hmm. and in communicating those facts to the world he's going to also communicate those uh, notions of significance which is a value judgment right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the significance of those facts, um, he has to appeal to something outside of his Mm -hmm. modern scientific rationality in Mm -hmm. order to adjudicate them. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's assigning a value to them, Mm -hmm. right? And based on his experiences in the past and what he's believed, 
um, mm-hmm. to, to carry the most value or weight for what he thinks is the most important based on what he's experienced in the past. Yep. And, All those uh, things factor yeah. in. So anyway, we're in the weeds here, but going <laughs> back to the meme thing real quick, um, obviously any atheist that heard me say what I just said, the meme that I wrote, uh, would be like, no, 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 you misunderstand. You're simplifying or you don't understand the, the facts about things. And I'd say, oh, so you want to contextualize and nuance your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the point, you know, mm-hmm. and I would want to do the same about the way that a Christian view was yeah. And you know, to interpret presented. that something a Christian is communicating is not nuanced is because you're not living in their nuance. Like they're mm-hmm. communicating something simply that perhaps does have quite a bit of nuance for them. But because you're not in on that, it looks like they're not using nuance and complexity and higher forms of thinking and things like that. But that's not necessarily true. Yeah, they're just choosing to construe what you believe in the absolute worst possible Mm -hmm. way. And we could all do that to each other all day long Mm -hmm. and we would go nowhere. And it's the same way where like Christians feel that way about people who don't agree with them in the world. We can often say, it's so simple. Look, it's like this, but it's not simple. Christians are 100% guilty of this stuff too. Anyway, um, what what should we talk about? Is, is Genesis I mean, creation story? I have I have some thoughts. Okay. Um, <laughs> so when I was growing up, Phil, I don't know if it would surprise you, but I wasn't great at math, like in elementary <laughs> school. Um, really, just not a math thinker. I'm not mathematical. Like I I was in some form of, um, like performance piano and band and chorus for like my entire mm-hmm. you know academic life in like elementary middle and high school right like all through and to get through the musical stuff when i'm not good at math i had all these like little tricks that i would do to remember things and things uh-huh. like that because it just didn't make sense and also with math like it was always just kind of a slog yeah to get through things all the way up through algebra 2 and then you know what happened i took chemistry and geometry at the same time my Mm -hmm. sophomore year and it was like the world exploded because everything made sense because it shifted from Mm -hmm. like just numbers which just like none of that would work with my brain but everything had pictures and was physically something and like you know all of that and i was just like I just like nailed it, like straight A's, no problem. And a lot of times people kind of hate dealing with chemistry or geometry. I actually loved it. So anyway, I was telling that to my kids the other day and they said, you know, you'd probably really like new math then, you know, and I'm like, yes, if you had been giving me pizzas and telling me to put certain numbers of pepperonis on pizzas (laughs) and that that could be like an answer. to a test question i probably would have done great because you and i grew up in the world where learn like the way we learn math is we just learn tricks yeah like you can't correlate how it worked to what's actually happening you just memorize stuff and then memorize how to work with the stuff to get the right answer you just learn tricks but you weren't visualizing math happening in your head yeah um (laughs) um so anyway i'm not good at math but i am good with like oh it's like embodied now there's like something to deal with and i totally get it yes and so anyway i was thinking that as i was reading this chapter that it's dealing with these concepts of like don't don't just read the bible for facts but it's also using facts and ideas in order to communicate that and so it was just kind of hurting my brain (laughs) 
<laughs> um, the idea that like the form is not necessarily accomplishing the function of the point that mm -hmm. he's saying. And I'm not asking it to because that's not what this book is for. Like it has its own sure. thing. So anyway, I started to think about like other thinkers, other people who have talked on these points, but maybe in a way that flows for me a bit better. Okay. <laughs> So I was thinking about Eugene Peterson and there's this um, interview that Eugene Peterson did with Image Journal several years ago. I mean, it was probably a really long time ago. I don't know. I'll link to it. So Perfect. anyway, so in that he'll talk about, so something that Eugene Peterson would talk about all the time is spiritual theology. So when you hear the word theology, for many people who hear that in the church, especially you're thinking what? Uh, when I hear theology, uh -huh. I mean, what's like, God like? Yeah, but what are like what are like most people thinking of when they hear about theology? They're thinking about like books. Oh, sure. What is God like? Of course, because it's tomes. God talk. Yes, mm -hmm. but you're thinking about books and studying and like all that theological stuff. When we do know the short answer is just this: like, who is God? Mm -hmm. How to talk about God? <laughs> That's theology. But. um I feel like I have to correct myself now because that's not even theology. It's just like anytime you're talking about God, whether it's true or not, that's mm -hmm. a theology. <laughs> so sure. anyway, yeah. you're so safe. you're safe to say theology is, is the question of what's God like. like yeah, exactly. God. It's just talking about God. So um, anyway, he'll talk about spiritual theology. So what does that mean? Like when you mix these two words that arguably are pretty well used in yeah. Christian culture, spiritual and theology. Like, what does that mean? Um, and that was just his short way of explaining spiritual theology is just theology that you actually live. Sure. It's like very similar to anything Dallas Willard ever said about like embodying the theology that you um, understand to be true. That's how you actually believe something is by mm -hmm. living it with your actual body, your actual life. So, um, so here's a quote. He said, a great deal of theology has to do with doctrine, with getting it right. Spiritual theology aims to bring that together within a lived life. The conviction behind spiritual theology is that the Bible and all of Christian belief is livable. It's not just something to be held in your head or performed through your actions and ethics, but actually embodied. The model for spiritual theology is the incarnation and spiritual theology is understood in the context of the Trinity where everything is relational. There is no disembodied Christian truth. There's no abstraction about the Christian life. It is all intended to be lived in a coherent way. So first off the bat, there's more to say, but He's just saying that there are things that are tangible about Christian life and the truth about how the world is ordered that you can't just put on a page. You have mm -hmm. to feel them. You have to experience them. Like you can't just pursue God with what is, you know, we tend to think that correct theology is like understanding much as the Bible say about sin which right. is true, but it only becomes truly true to you. Mm -hmm. Like you really only know it if you live it through things that are very intangible. Right. So <clears throat> that's the whole basis yeah. of this. Um, and then he goes on to talk about how, you know, the, the half of the Bible that is not poetry is narrative. So even like long genealogies and all the letters in the new Testament and all of that, it's, it's living people. Right. And then the text is coming up out of people. Mm -hmm. So everything, yep. it, none, none of the Bible is just information. Mm -hmm. It's up out of like people living the theology. 
yep. that we get. Yep. Theology is not just like floating thought bubbles in the universe. Mm-hmm. It's always uh, understood and evaluated and revealed through life. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what you're saying is one of the struggles he had with this, these chapters was it felt like we were just trying to grasp onto thought bubbles that are floating abstractly. Yeah, it's like we're saying it's not a good idea to look at the world that way. Mm-hmm. And then it's looking at the world, that looking way. at the world sure. that way, which I don't, I mean, this book has to accomplish what it is accomplishing, which is just, it's limited on yeah. what it can do. But yeah. you know, like it's, um, it gets really difficult for me to sit in that for too long without trying to go find something else to kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> illustrate the same thing. But, um, so like even, even connected to that, like Eugene Peterson, of course, loved like Gerard Manley Hopkins, who's a very illustrative poet. Mm-hmm. Like everything's very like the like everything dappled in nature, like all the ways that nothing's like completely perfect, like all one color. It's like this beautiful imperfection, all of that. Um, Emily Dickinson, um, you know, loved George Eliot, um, loved. Dostoevsky so it's like this idea of like um the poets and the the storytellers who are are creating up out of like the very basics of everyday life and revealing you know like the deeper intangible things that flow through all Mm -hmm. of that so and what I love about that when we're thinking about science is that science is simply like the pursuit to understand how things are, how they work, mm-hmm. where they came from, where they're going, and all yeah. that's really important. Um, but he'll talk about how, um, how do you, so there's, he, Eugene Peterson is talking about artists and poets and novelists who really um, like help him grab on to how to communicate as a pastor. Mm-hmm. And so he's talking about um, that these are people who look at life and try to articulate it in a way that embodies who we are and what we're doing. If all I read is systematic doctrinal theology, I'm just dealing with mental processes. If all I do is read about the moral life and right behavior, I'm just doing what the teachers tell me to. But the artist works with language in a way that integrates who we are and what we think and what we do. I don't know any other place to go for help. So he's just basically saying like, if you're looking at this when we're talking about science, like science is the study of how things work Mm -hmm. and how to make them change in ways that we want them to change and all mm-hmm. those types of things and that's not bad but if you're looking for what to build your life on it can't only be right provable facts right and, <laughs> and so what he was saying about artists and poets and stuff uh the question that popped in my mind was is the writer of genesis one of those mm-hmm. and i think the answer is unequivocally yes mm-hmm. the writer of genesis is helping us to identify not just the modern facts scientific facts about the creation of the universe but he's helping us understand the function of life the function of things the significance of humans and the nature of god in those first two or three chapters Mm -hmm. of genesis and that he does it through literary devices in fact the book talks about how hey even you know day one Two and three correspond to days four, five, and six in certain ways. You know, mm-hmm. one corresponds to four, two corresponds to five. You know, it's like the sea and the air, and then five is like the birds and the fish. You know, and three corresponds to six, and then seven you have, you know, God dwelling in his newly created, uh, newly made creation. And so even in the Bible, like 
when you and I, when I say a number, if I say the number seven or 140, in you know, you just think about the number seven or the number 140. Or perfection. Oh, well, <laughs> that's only because you're influenced by Genesis, right? Right, yeah. Like the Bible, a number is never just a number. Mm-hmm. In science, a number is just a number. Mm-hmm. In modernity, a number is just a number. But in the Bible, a number is almost never just a number, you know? Yeah. And so they're always communicating something more to us and to simply reduce it down to a, uh, to have, you know, what we would consider like a modern scientific lens mm-hmm. is going to miss huge swaths of a what it's trying to communicate. A number is never just a number. And even like where certain words are within the text that it's a part of, it can mean something numerically that isn't just a number that mm-hmm. we don't see or understand unless you're reading things in Hebrew. And so he, <laughs> yeah. And, and so he never mentions the word myth and I understand why, because that conjures up lots of scary things yeah. like fairy tales um, mm-hmm. Every culture has a set of myths. Native Americans have their myths. You know, um, Af- South Africans have myths. Mm-hmm. Even Americans have myths. Like these are explanatory stories that help us identify mm-hmm. our value, function, and place in the world. The keyword is help because a myth doesn't necessarily mean false. It means like the the way that we understand something that helps us understand it when it's something that's just, uh, it's too complex mm-hmm. to be able to fully just articulate. Right. You know? The Boston Tea Party happened, but it's also got a mm-hmm. mythical function in kind of establishing our DNA as mm-hmm. who we are as kind of, I don't know, rugged individualists who don't. Yeah, and even like stick it to the authority. Like England and the Blitz, you know, you're thinking about like you can immediately picture what that was like and like keep calm and carry on and all of that stuff. Um, That's like kind of a myth of like the people Mm -hmm. of England and and how they've like lived for all this time. Um, That isn't not true, but also like they were imperialists who totally went and just took other people's stuff. And so, so the yeah. Israelites, he makes a good point that the Israelites existed for 400 years in Egypt, being inundated with all the, the pantheon of gods of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so then the, the Genesis comes along and it says, I mean, it has a mythical force when it says, in the beginning, God, Yahweh, created the heavens and the earth. Um, this is who you are. Mm-hmm. You know. And then a little later you read, uh, in his image, he created them. This is who you are. This is who God is, your God. And so there's a a way in which Genesis has a mythical function. I'm, I don't want you to hear the word fairy tale or anything like that in there. Cause like I said, myths can be true in the sense we usually think of truth, but there's a bigger truth to them. Mm-hmm. They, they communicate truth, mm-hmm. not necessarily with only facts. Yeah. And so we need to think of when we read the, not just Genesis, the whole Old Testament, we need to think not just scientifically, but what's this saying? theologically and anthropologically. What is this saying about who God is and about who we are? Because that's where the real meat of Christian or the biblical inspiration, I think, lies. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, um, you know, no scientific discovery is going to, is going to contradict or Mm -hmm. negate. It just works with it. Right. It's another way of interacting with the world. It doesn't make one thing true and one thing false. They Mm -hmm. just work together. And like Walter Brueggemann would talk about one of the most important things that you need for pastoral ministry is a poetic imagination. And so like poetic thinking about everything that you do as you communicate theologically in what you do as a minister. And so um, like that idea is really, it's not us trying to make art out of stuff that's just like, 
theologically true. It's saying the way that God has brought himself to us through the word forms how we bring the word to one another. Mm-hmm. And so it's not to say that we're trying to like um, make theology all artistic and like make it in our own image and all of that, although we all can't help trying to do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's to say this is how God brought the word to us you know, in these, um, not all just like scientific, literal, logical lines of like, here's what happened, then here's what happened, then here's what happened. It always means so much more than that. And it's teaching you who God is in lots of different ways. And so, and then Eugene Peterson too would talk about like the task of a preacher is to say an old thing in a new way. And that's really kind of what this is, is formed by that idea that God wants to communicate something true about who he is and he does it in a way that we can receive it Mm -hmm. and understand something about him yeah yeah that's good theological and anthropological understandings what's it saying about god what's it saying about people that is often what's happening in the bible and he illustrates this well on page 175 um when you know he's talking about how the israelites were in bondage in egypt and so but here we have a story of a wonderful God who is entirely unlike the Egyptian or Babylonian gods and goddesses. Only in Genesis do we meet a single God, not multiple gods, who has a covenantal and personal relationship with people. Unlike other narratives, the God in the Genesis creation story doesn't need assistance from other gods to create. Uh, the God in Genesis creates human beings with dignity and beauty. None of the other creation stories reveal a God who does that. Uh, the God in the creation story entrusted human beings with the task of caring for creation rather than creating them as servants to serve the whims of that God. And so that's the message that we need to get from Genesis. You know, and so these questions about, well, was it 24 literal day or, you know, 24 little hours or not? Um, or just what was that one meme about the, the sun? Like if the sun didn't exist the yet, how could made, days pass? How was You're the, like, come on now. It wasn't made until day four. Uh, so how could days pass? Well, it's silly, but they're they're responding to Christians, you know, Mm -hmm. like Christians did the silly first. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but look, you know, St. Augustine, he didn't think that we should understand them literally in this way that we think of literal. He didn't see it as 24 literal hours of Mm -hmm. days. Um, and in fact, as he says in the book, the word, the Hebrew word yom can refer to any number of time periods. It just means a time period not necessarily 24 hour day. And so at the, uh, yeah, at the, the grammatical level and the, the level of the language, as well as at the literary level, uh, the genre and stuff like that, we can start to see just how deeply we've misconstrued and misunderstood and misread Genesis. Um, and perhaps we are ill-equipped, especially ill-equipped today in our modern era uh, to really get under the hood of what's mm-hmm. going on there because we've been so disabused of mythical and allegorical ways of communicating truth and stuff like that. So, I don't know. Um, Christians, we need to do a better job of recognizing that our Bible isn't always necessarily giving us scientific mm-hmm. evidence for things. Um and start to read it for what it's actually trying to do. And that's form us into the people of God. And when we do that, I think that we'll find a lot of things are, are better than they were. So, um, I feel like there's only one way to wrap this up. Taking care is one way to show your love. Another way is letting people take good care of you when you need it. 
There Thank we go. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> now just take that, synthesize it with everything we've just talked about, and come up with some new, deeper meaning and understanding of who God is and who you are and what we can do about that yes. today. Good job. <laughs> Before we go, I do want to. I did want to talk about the rib, the rib oh, woman yes. and the serpent, because that <laughs> tricks people up. Uh, the rib when Ad, God creates Eve out of a rib, you know, oh, God literally made her out of a rib. Well, that's weird. Or as New Te- Old Testament scholar John Walton has observed, like the Hebrew word for rib is also the same word they just use for the side of something, like the hey, side no. of the ark or half mm-hmm. of an animal or something like that. Like it was, it's saying that God made Eve as. Adam's corresponding equal. Did we just talk about this last time? We might have. Yeah. The whole, because I feel like I just heard John Walton talking about that. Plus, I think we talked about it last time about like, it's not just like literal mm-hmm. bone out of chest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the same can be said for like the, the talking snake. And he, he alludes to this a little bit. That he doesn't go into it a lot. But John Walton, again, talks about how there's a literary device. It's you can call, They call it a chaos creature. It's just this creature that comes and sows chaos in the story and the narrative and disrupts things. Mm-hmm. And that's, the, that's the, the character that the serpent is kind of playing. And the Hebrew word isn't like literal snake. It's like this divisive spiritual being. And so anyway, all that to say, let's understand it as, a, as the literary work it is pointing us to who God is. Because yeah. that's what it does. There would be much more to say, but Mr. Rogers has already spoken. And so we'll <laughs> save it for another time. There's, um, I feel like in some ways our episodes have really overlapped topically. But it's because we're talking about one thing from a few different angles. But it's really just one thing, which is that um, you cannot simply interact with the Bible as an information manual about who God is and what what is supposed to happen in the world. Um you, you have to take it for that plus all of the other ways that you're designed to function as a human being and then understand how yeah. they work together. Thanks for listening, everybody. Tune in next time.